1: To the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 202. I'm going to play something for you, and I want you to listen to it with the intention of. Detecting something unusual within the sound, something distinct. <laughs> within all of that noise was a snippet of audio created by Matt Davis, who is a scientist at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at Cambridge University. He researches what's going on in your brain when you try to understand language. Here is the snippet from his research. Right now, that sounds like noise to you. And I want you to savor that feeling because where we are going next, you can never go back. I'll play it one more time, and then we will cross the cognitive point of no return. When it comes to the development of your brain, there's a history, a timeline, in which there is a you before you heard the next segment, and a you after you hear it. And after you hear it, you can never, ever go back. Right now, your brain has no idea what to do with all of that noise. It wants to make sense of it, but it can't. This is excruciating to the brain because other than keeping your body alive, its greatest talent, the task it is most eager to perform, is pattern recognition. The reason we have podcasts and popcorn, spaghetti and smartphones, is pattern recognition. We landed on the moon because we are amazing at pattern recognition. Recognition, But a lot of people also think we didn't land on the moon because we are amazing at pattern recognition. We talk about confirmation bias a lot on this show, and that's because confirmation bias is, if not the foundation of, almost always a crucial ingredient in self-delusion, irrational behavior, and motivated reasoning confirmation bias is central to how we fool ourselves into thinking things that just aren't true and how we maintain outdated beliefs even though there is plenty of readily available and easily attainable evidence to the contrary for instance it's pretty clear that the earth is round or spherical or to be technical an oblate spheroid there is plenty of evidence to support that conclusion plenty of experts on youtube who have used animations to explain how we know this is so. But, you know, if you believe the Earth is flat, like a giant patch of sod floating through space, well, there's an alternative epistemic support network for that belief. And they also have YouTube videos. And that's true for everything. Whatever you currently believe, no matter how wrong or strange or against the grain of scientific consensus, confirmation for that belief is a Google search away. And this is the essence of confirmation bias. It rears its ugly head in a number of different ways. But in each incarnation, it is the tendency for human brains to seek evidence to support their hunches instead of seeking disconfirmation of those hunches. And back when we only had libraries and magazines and VHS tapes that you could rent at Blockbuster, we still did this. But now that we have Google... No matter what it is that you believe, no matter what your preconceived notions, no matter what your assumptions, no matter your ideology, if you want to maintain those things, if you want to keep that stuff in your head and you go fact-checking with confirmation as your guide, you will receive it. So why do we do this? I mean, why would we think through a confirmation bias? Why is that something brains do? Well, the speculation across neuroscience, psychology, and the other social sciences is that most of our cognitive biases are adaptive. They come free of charge with every copy of the human brain because, on average, across many generations and several millennia of experiences, they offered some sort of advantage over the other alternatives, over the other ways of making sense of the world. Now, you know, in a case-by-case basis, it's not always the best approach. But smeared across all of those generations of evolution, something something was working out for us when we used confirmation bias. Now, once we get into speculation like this, especially concerning evolutionary origins, it's important to note that we're only hypothesizing. We don't know the answer. No one knows the answer. But there are some pretty good educated guesses out there. And the one that I like the best involves that sound. What do I mean by that? Well, to understand it, you need to get that pattern recognition that your brain is so thirsty for.
0: It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park.
1: Welcome to The Other Side. This illustration is called Perceptual Pop-Out, and it comes from an article at lesswrong.com by a user called Morindil. Morindil combined that idea, Perceptual Pop-Out, with something that artificial intelligence researcher Jim Carnicelli said. He said, quote, Once you have an expectation of what to look for in the data, you quickly find it. And that is confirmation bias in a nutshell. When you go looking for something you expect to see you're more likely to see it. When the audio you heard was all noise, you couldn't find the pattern. And now that you have the pattern stored in your brain, you can't help but hear it. The adaptive advantage of confirmation bias is that when you dive into the chaos of sensory experience, you're more likely to find the thing that you want to find if you are looking for something specific. So let's run through all of that again to get to the main point. First, there is noise. Then, there is a pattern.
0: It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park.
1: Now, try to find the pattern against the background of chaos. (laughs) (laughs) When the brain enters the world, just about everything is noise. And then you learn the patterns. Mom, clouds, ant bites, corn on the cob. It all starts to come into focus. The static clears away. And when you go looking for those patterns against the background of chaos, you can find them. Now, imagine yourself as one of our ancestors on the savannah. You learn all the patterns for predator recognition. Lions, tigers, hyenas, leopards. And let's say you are in an area where you have a hunch that cheetahs might be stalking prey. Against the chaos of the fields and trees and sky and rocks, you go looking for confirmation of your hunch. This is the auditory version of detecting a cheetah in the bushes. And this was so useful that it may be why we still have confirmation bias skewing our perception today when we go looking for evidence of flat planets and poisonous vaccines and fake moon landings and climate change hoaxes. For a very long time, false positives were not an issue because even if you found something you were sure was a cheetah, but it wasn't, well, that's okay because it's better to be wrong than it is to be food. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're having a conversation with Ben Tappan, a scientist whose latest research was featured in the New York Times because he re-examined confirmation bias and was able to pull apart a second bias that has been braided into it all this time, something he calls desirability bias. This discovery adds a new layer to our understanding of confirmation bias – And it makes it more nuanced because it reveals we can have beliefs we would rather not be true. And when given an opportunity to believe how we want, we abandon confirmation for our desires instead. All that after this break. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/yanss today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com/yanss. So you want to make better decisions, and you have a business. You have a business, and you want to make better decisions. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Confirmation bias is our tendency to seek evidence that supports our beliefs, that confirms our assumptions, when we could just as well seek disconfirmation of those beliefs and those assumptions instead. Since we can so easily find that confirmation, When we stop searching at the moment we think we have made sense of the world, we can grow ever more wrong over time, even though it feels like we're doing the hard work, doing the research required to build good beliefs. This is such a prevalent feature of human cognition that, until recently, a second bias has been hidden in plain sight. That's because desirability is often twisted into confirmation like a single psychological braid. But recent research suggests that something called desirability bias may be just as prevalent in our thinking.
0: Desirability bias is the tendency to favor information that is consistent with our preferences and desires over information that is inconsistent with those things. That's Ben Tappin. I'm Ben Tappen. Um I am a PhD candidate uh, at Royal Holloway University of London uh, in the UK. Last
1: year, Ben and his team were in hot pursuit of this new psychological beast they called desirability bias. And they're about to publish a new study that seems to have taken the first step in teasing out desirability from confirmation so we can study it separately.
0: In most cases, um, practically speaking, the two, the two things align, right? So information that, that confirms your prior belief Tends to be desirable. People tend to hold tend to hold beliefs that align, you know, with their with their preferences um, more often than not. And this is especially notable in, in the political domain, right? Um, I mean, you can imagine. Uh, I think one of the examples we gave uh, in the New York Times piece was uh, the gun the gun control advocate. You know, they they sort of have this this belief, this prior belief, that you know uh, gun laws will reduce um, gun crime, gun um, homicides. But they also they also have this emotional investment. They have to have this preference for, for these laws to uh, reduce, reduce gun crime. Ben and his team used the word desire
1: as a catch-all term for these emotional urges to support certain beliefs and not others. These emotional drives can come from many different emotional sources. Identity, group loyalty, sacred values, sunk costs, time spent fighting for a cause, and so on. It can make for some really interesting situations. For instance, let's say the environment is doing just fine. I mean, it isn't. But let's just say that we got some evidence that CO2 levels were returning to normal. A person who is deeply invested in an identity as a supporter of environmental issues might find such evidence harder to believe than someone who didn't see themselves in that way. Their emotional attachment to that identity would be threatened, even though... The news would be good. In most psychological research into confirmation, desire isn't measured at all. For instance, people who believe that capital punishment is a strong deterrent to crime, they tend to give more weight to information that matches those preconceived notions. The result is that when people are presented with an equal amount of confirmatory and disconfirmatory evidence, they don't balance out their beliefs. Instead, they become more entrenched because they disregard the disconfirmatory info, and that leaves behind the confirmation, which they then use to reinforce their priors. Ben and his team hypothesize that there may be more at play than just pure confirmation in situations like these. People who believe that capital punishment is a strong deterrent to crime also want to believe that capital punishment is a strong deterrent to crime. Their raw factual assumptions and their emotional investment are congruent. Most of the time, our beliefs and desires match up like this. You believe that your favorite fast food restaurant will not give you food poisoning, and you want that to be true. Your past experiences have reinforced one aspect of your belief, and your future desire reinforces another. Ben wanted to create a study in which the subject's beliefs and desires did not match up. And since the Trump versus Clinton election was just getting started in the United States they thought it would be a perfect opportunity.
0: Get a bunch of U.S. residents, so people living uh, in the U.S., and we would just ask them who they wanted to win, so who they preferred, who they desired to win um, out of Donald Trump uh, and Hillary Clinton, and who they thought would win, right? So so who they believed uh, was most likely to win.
1: This was a great opportunity because even though the polls were neck and neck, many people who supported Trump at the time didn't actually think he was going to end up As the president, they believed he would lose, but they wanted him to win, so their beliefs and their desires were incongruent. So they brought together supporters of both candidates and had them answer who they wanted to win, and then each person dragged a slider between the two candidates, which quantified as a percentage their prior beliefs as to who would win, all the way to Clinton, that's 100% Clinton and zero Trump, almost all the way, that's 90% Clinton and 10% Trump
0: and here's the important part right so we grouped um, the participants we collected the participants such that roughly half of them had beliefs uh, beliefs and desires prior beliefs and desires were congruent and what i mean by that is we had people who wanted Donald Trump to win, supporters of Donald Trump, and they also thought that he was most likely to win. Their confidence in in who would win the election was was erring on the side of Trump. They thought he was more likely than Hillary to win. And then the same goes for Hillary Clinton supporters, uh, who also thought that Hillary was more likely to win. Uh, And then in the other group, we had these two were uh, incongruent, right? So we had the Trump supporter who believed Hillary Clinton was actually most likely to win the election, uh, and vice versa for, um, for Clinton supporters uh, believing that Trump, that Trump would win. In that group, in the incongruent group, you have this almost decoupling of prior belief and preferences, preferences and desires. So what we did after that was we just presented some evidence to these participants, uh, just randomly presented evidence to them, um, which either basically emphasised that Donald Trump uh, was more likely to win, or that Hillary Clinton was more likely to win.
1: So you have two groups, the
0: congruent people
1: who want their candidate to win and believe their candidate will win, and the incongruent group who also want their candidate to win but believe he or she will lose. They then gave all of these people fake polling information as if it was hot off the presses and indicated that either their preferred candidate or the other person had moved ahead. So in the congruent group, both their future desires and past beliefs either received support or didn't, and in the incongruent group, only their future desires or past
0: beliefs received support. In the congruent group, you have this sort of um, sort of doubling up of confirmation um, and desirability biases, um, and that's that's the that's the usual sort of framework um, that this research is conducted in. There's there's no teasing apart, and in contrast to that, in the incongruent group, the evidence presented. Two participants can either confirm um, their prior belief, but in that case, it represents undesirable information, or consistent with who they, who they want to win the election, but it's inconsistent with who they, who they think is most likely to win. So you get this decoupling of the desirability of the information from its confirmatory sort of value.
1: This uncoupling was exactly what they had hoped to see. Now they could measure the power of confirmation versus the power of desire. Everyone went back to their sliders, and marked their new level of confidence in their old beliefs, and as they hypothesized, the effects were different for the congruent versus incongruent groups.
0: What we found was that when the evidence was uh, desirable, so when it was uh, consistent with um, who people preferred to win, so um, if you're the, if you're the Trump supporter and you saw the evidence suggesting. Uh, that Trump was more likely to win the election um, and, and the same goes for the Hillary supporters, uh, seeing the evidence about Hillary winning the election. Those people uh, changed their belief a lot more, so, the, so they, they integrated the evidence, they adjusted their confidence about who's going to win more in light of that information compared to those who received undesirable evidence, right? So supporters of Donald Trump reading about um, polling results suggesting that Hillary's going to win, and then the same for the Hillary supporters reading about uh, Trump going to win. So in that sense, we had this desirability bias manifest, um, where people were incorporating this information and it was leading to a greater change in confidence towards the information uh, if it was desirable. And importantly, this sort of effect, this bias, Emerged across across the the levels of the confirmatory manipulation, right? So so those people who received evidence that disconfirmed their prior belief, be that desirable or undesirable, showed the bias. Um, and those people who received confirmatory evidence, so polling results um, confirming their prior belief, still showed the bias between desirable and undesirable evidence. So we saw it uh, across the values of the uh, confirmatory evidence.
1: If they wanted Trump to win and they believed Trump was going to lose, and then they received information that confirmed that belief, it didn't change their minds. It didn't magnify that prior. They didn't become more confident in that belief. In fact, confirmation had little effect on people with incongruent beliefs and desires. Yet, when people got the information that they wanted, even though it was disconfirming, they were then much more likely to change their minds. In past studies, This was hard to see, because in most cases, those two things, prior beliefs and future desires, are the same. In this study, people believed things they'd rather not be true. And when those beliefs were challenged by contradictory evidence, confirmation bias did not hold them back. Desirability bias took over. When confirmation bias and desirability bias are decoupled, desirability bias seems to be the more powerful of the two.
0: Uh, Right. So obviously, um this only uh, one study obviously goes without saying so the implications uh, must be interpreted, you know, fairly lightly in, in light of that. Um we need sort of an accumulation, um, especially in this regard because of confirmation bias, you know, is such a it's such a monolith and that as you said at the start there's there's such um there's so much evidence, so much understanding of confirmation bias that it's it's really just clarifying um, and providing nuance to processes that we're already familiar with. You know, motivated reasoning and, and confirmation bias are very familiar um, uh, topics, I'm sure for your for your listeners. <laughs> um, and I guess specifically, uh, our study um, at least suggests that the the sort of polarization and the integration of evidence. Uh, may not be driven by the, the confirming value of the evidence per se. It might be more that that's what people prefer, prefer to be the case. Um, the evidence is consistent with what they prefer to be true, um, rather than the fact that it confirms you know, some prior belief that they hold.
1: Now, this was one study, and it needed to go through the gauntlet of replication. But should it hold up? I asked Ben what he thought we could take away from this research that might be useful in these contentious times.
0: Right, um, so I guess most of this will be speculation, um, but that's fine um, with with that caveat. Um, if you if you sort of take take a look at take a look at this way that preferences um, could possibly you know shape shape the way we we integrate evidence, and you know there's plenty of ways you could explore this further uh, in the same vein as confirmation bias, you know. Um, You could do a similar type of studies as as we did, um, but looking at how people search for information, for example, um, rather than how they integrate it into their beliefs. Um, So I would say that just uh, taking this preference, this desirability bias uh, into account, it might seem that... Uh, it might seem negative in a way because it sort of suggests that even if you sort of give people information, you know, give give them the facts of the matter, give them the information, people may still be liable to sort of polarise in this way because people have different preferences. People have different desires and, you know, change, changing those preferences and changing those desires is something that's... Um, you know, it's not really it's not really in the remit. I mean, you, you, you know, you can persuade people, but a lot of these a lot of these things are about you know deep seated identity sort of protective things that we've discussed. So I think um, in terms of that, it looks it looks quite negative that it's, it's going to be difficult to dig people out of the sort of trenches of, of desirability that they're in or all this sort of desirability bias that they're in. Having said that, I think there's also a it also reveals um, one way out of this right, which I think is that most people, when you get down to the core of it, have Similar, similar preferences and similar desires. Right? I think, I think most people want, you know, um, they want to be happy. They want to have a good life for them and uh, and and their families and the people they love. And I think, to the extent that you can tr- that you can that you can draw upon those preferences that we all share um, and the desires that we all share uh, as human beings, I think that you could you can frame things in such a way to try and at least minimise some of this. Uh, bias, polarization, uh, whatever you want to call it, when we're sort of faced with, with evidence on these big political issues and big political topics.
1: follow Ben Tappan on Twitter at Ben Tappen, that's B-E-N underscore T-A-P-P-I-N He's also at the Royal Holloway University of London. You can find him on their website. Just search for Mr. Ben Tappan. The paper we're talking about in this episode is open access. So if you'd like to read it, I'll have a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Alright. That's it for this episode. We just have the credits after this. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash smart. that is it for this episode of the you are not so smart podcast show notes for this episode over at you are not so smart.com past episodes are also there they're also at itunes stitcher soundcloud and wherever you find podcasts on twitter it is at NotSmartBlog. i am at David McCraney on Facebook is just slash you are not so smart on Patreon. It's just slash you are not so smart. The opening music is clash by caravan palace. And all the music in this episode came from Kevin McLeod. It's all creative commons and it comes from his website incompetech.com. I have a link to it on the show notes for this episode.